Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. I am pleased to have with me today someone I've known now for 11 years, beginning when I was a student in his 10-week course back in 2010, The Biblical Principles of Government. Just to prove that this is a subject that bears review, now in 2021, I am once again enrolled in taking the same course. Now you might ask, did the biblical principles of government change in the past decade? No, but circumstances have progressed in our nation to the point that my understanding of the crucial issues we face merits another pass at this material. Mike Winther, head of the Institute for Principal Studies, was one of our guest lecturers at the San Jose Law and Liberty Conference back in 2013. He joins me today to answer the question, does our banking system make us slaves? Thanks for joining me today, Mike. It's great to be here. All right, before we delve into answering the question I posed, tell my audience a little bit about yourself and why you have devoted the past 17 years of your life and livelihood to fostering a better understanding of the biblical role of government. Yeah, well, I think it all began, uh, at least began for me as a youth. I grew up in a family where government was uh, of interest. My dad was a student of government, so was my mom. I was drugged to a lot of conferences on economics and government as a kid. I decided to major in political science in college, uh, to which my grandmother said, how are you going to make a living doing that? And I, I'm still not sure, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a great and a very important field. Um, coming out of uh, college, I actually worked in the campaign world for a while. I wanted to make the world a better place, and it seemed like getting better elected officials was a good way to do that. Uh, I quickly learned that uh, a good candidate cannot win uh, generally if their constituency does not agree with a good part of their message. And I recognize that we were losing America, not necessarily on election day. Uh, election day was a symptom. We were losing America because we we're losing the hearts and minds of Americans. And so I began teaching a, a course in our church, uh, goodness, um, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago on Christian citizenship and the Christian's involvement in the public square. And then we founded the Institute for Principal Studies in 2005. And the whole goal of the Institute for Principal Studies is to teach biblical principles of government and economics. And so here I am. So here you are. <laughs> so the question today is an economic question. And I would, you know, I would venture to say that most people don't even understand what economics is as a subject or an area of concentration. So first, let's talk about that. How would you define economics? Yeah, economics at its core is the rules by which we engage in trade and commerce. Um, so uh, we might study the economics of our household, which is the household rules that we have. Uh, do we stay within a budget? Do we go outside the budget? How do we save, spend, invest? And uh, a macro level uh, for the whole economy, uh, economics is the rules by which our economy is guided. And so what happens is for a nation, the study of economics really is a study of government because the core question in economics at the macro or the nationwide level is what is the government's role in managing the economy, uh, if any? And so uh, economic principles are certainly there in a vacuum, but um, they're not really allowed to operate just as economic principles because policymakers, uh, government officials, regulate all the things that happen in the economy. So right. economics becomes a part of government in that regard. Okay. So there is a principle that you bring out in your course that what's true for individuals needs to be true for the institutions that govern individuals. Mm -hmm. And so we have a system today that what's right for you and me isn't necessarily what's considered right for government officials, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely correct. We have a double standard of, of justice where we allow government to do things we never would allow an individual to do. If Mike Winther was to create his own currency and create the rules and how I manage that currency, uh, I would be thrown in jail. Uh, even if it was a cryptocurrency, if I didn't follow certain rules that the government has, uh, if they could find me, I would be arrested. Uh, and yet we give uh, our government and uh, we give some select private institutions powers that the average individual does not have. And so it creates a, a playing field that's not level. Uh, I, I liken it to the mindset that if we said that a, a car manufacturer uh, could only exist by permission of the government, you know, we'd not have any startup car makers at that point. We'd have no Tesla. You know, we, uh, we'd be fixed to the old car makers. And that's the way we are with our money. Uh, the government has given a monopoly over the money supply in America to the Federal Reserve System and made it technically illegal for startups uh, to compete. Uh, you can't even open a bank without being part of the, the federal banking system. Now, when you say federal banking system, most people will say another branch of government, but the Federal Reserve is not a branch of government, is it? You know, we assume because it has the word federal that it's somehow government. Uh, but we have Federal Express delivering packages and they're not a government company or you know, they're a private company. So the word federal does not make it government. Uh, the Federal Reserve System is the most bizarre, most unique creation. Um, uh, I would say the most creative, and I don't mean that in a positive way, but probably the most creative system ever devised by man. Uh, in 1913, we passed in America the Federal Reserve Act. And this act centralizes banking. It conveys a banking monopoly on the Federal Reserve. And uh, you cannot engage in banking activities unless you're part of that Federal Reserve System. And even though this was created by an act of Congress, uh, the bank itself is a private bank. So uh, the Federal Reserve is a private bank uh, to which the government has some control over its directors, uh, but not all control and um, the ownership is private. So we've created this quasi-private, quasi-government hybrid banking system. And I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, the Federal Reserve is a hybridization, a mix between a public and a private institution. Uh, it was created by the government, so it's public in that regard. It's privately owned, so it's private in that regard. Uh, and it was made to be very independent of the political process. So that means the Federal Reserve does a whole lot of things that um, they have monopoly power from government, and yet government doesn't have control. So is it fair to say that the Federal Reserve gets to pick winners and losers? Yeah, all the time. Uh, you know, the, the big economic debate is between the idea of the free market versus socialism. And free market advocates like myself say the market should be free for people to buy, sell, and trade. Um, free of government uh, intervention, as long as no one murders or steals or, or whatever. Um, the other economic system is called the socialist system. And the main argument used when I was going through school for why the socialist system might be better was the Great Depression of 1929. Um, and this is billed as a failure of the, the free market. But that is revisionist history. The truth of the matter is the Great Depression of 1929 was caused lock, stock, and barrel by the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve had a very loose money policy inflating the money supply in the 1920s. Everybody felt richer, but they really weren't. Uh, they had a lot of cash, but the money was losing value. Uh, it did not make sense to save in the 1920s. It only made sense to spend and maybe to invest in stocks. And so the stock market had a huge run up. And then in, in 1928, the Federal Reserve says, ah, men were creating too much money. So they capped the money supply and actually began to shrink the money supply. And it was that shrinking money supply that caused the stock market crash in 1829 and creates the Great Depression. Uh, this was not a failure of free enterprise or not a failure of the free market. It was a failure of monopoly socialist control over our money, money supply. Is it fair to say that this was an unintended consequence 
from the Fed? Or were some people emerging from the Great Depression better off than before? Yeah, um, I would say yes to both of your questions. For the bulk of America, it was an unintended consequence. Uh, even for those lawmakers who had voted to pass the Federal Reserve Act in 1813, I don't think they intended that consequence. Uh, but uh, central banking uh, groups who'd been doing this in Europe long before they came to America had realized that they can manipulate the money supply and manipulate interest rates for great personal gain and benefit. So I would say for a small group of people who knew their history and knew their economics, um, the Federal Reserve System, they knew was a way to um, line their pockets with, with cash. And certainly in the Great Depression, the vast majority of Americans left the Great Depression far poorer than they were at the beginning. Uh, but like all economic cycles, there were people who gained great wealth because of the Great Depression. So a biblical principle is that the borrower is a slave to the lender. So my question is, how does our banking system make us slaves? Explain. Yeah, I think it does it in more than one way. Um, for starters, uh, and without going into a lot of really in-depth content how the Federal Reserve System works, let me just suffice it to say that a, a currency or a money uh, is normally backed by something. So in the old days, our currency was backed by gold or silver. Uh, and so that would be called an asset-based currency. And I'll just remind the listeners that in finance, you've got liabilities and assets. Um, an asset is something you own or value. A liability is an obligation that you have. So if you have a home, the home itself is an asset, but if you own, owe the bank money on it, that's a liability. Well, money is almost always going to be backed by something. Uh, there are exceptions, but uh, let's deal with the commonplace. Uh, and money typically in history has been backed either by assets or by debt. And the whole Federal Reserve System is designed to really be a money system not based on assets, but based on debt. So if American, our government was to pay off all of its debt overnight, um, the Federal Reserve would lose the backing for the money because the backing of the money is backed by debt instruments, by IOUs. So right off the bat, the very presence of our money is not reflecting an asset. Now we might treat that way as a citizen, I've got a hundred dollars in a wallet, that's an asset, but the system itself is based on debt. The initial value for that hundred dollars is based on a government bond. Uh, it's government deficits that create that. So right off the bat, we know that the borrower is slave to the lender. We know that being in debt is a form of, of slavery. So that's one aspect. Uh, I think another aspect is we forget about the concept of inflation. Uh, inflation is really a hidden tax. Inflation is when the money loses value and prices go up. Well, uh, when the government uh, borrows more and they borrow from the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve creates more money. And we're sending out all these stimulus checks, uh, the government doesn't have that money in the bank. The government will be borrowing that, and the Federal Reserve is monetizing it into more money. So now we have more money entering the economy. We now have more dollars chasing the same number of goods. And I know after some of the listeners, I may have lost them here, but just think of supply and demand. Um, if we have the same number of goods and services, but we increase the number of U.S. dollars, uh, there will be a bidding war, and prices will go up. And we certainly see that every time the government deficit spends uh, and every time the Federal Reserve creates more money. So then those increasing prices are a hidden tax, uh, especially on people with fixed incomes. So if I'm a retired person, I've got X amount of money saved. If there's 5% inflation in a year, uh, that means my savings is losing 5% of its value it really is a 5% tax. So that's, that's a key thing to remember here because a tax can make you a slave as well. Right, right. So here's a question based on what you said. You said that we no longer have money that's backed by 
hard substances like gold and silver. So what exactly is the Federal Reserve lending when, when they give money to banks? What are they giving? Well, the system is set up so the Federal Reserve has a balance sheet, and the balance sheet is, blend, is uh, a balance of assets and liabilities. So, okay, if the listeners will follow this, um, the listeners will be amazed at the ingenuity of this process. Let's say Congress deficit spends a billion dollars. And so the Congress goes to borrow the money. Now, they can borrow from several places. But let's assume they borrow from the Federal Reserve. So Congress gives the Federal Reserve an IOU, okay, a debt instrument. And Congress says to the Federal Reserve, hey, we'll put, pay you back the billion dollars down the road. Now, the Fed has that IOU. Well, that is a liability to the government and the taxpayer, but it's now an asset to the Federal Reserve because the government's promising to pay the Federal Reserve back. Then that's an asset on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Now the Federal Reserve creates money, and that may be physical paper bills, or it may be money just entered in electronic entries and bank accounts. And that money is a liability to the Fed. So the Fed can balance its books by having a billion dollar note from the government, an IOU from the government, and printing a billion dollars of cash. So Congress borrows a billion dollars from the Fed, the Fed gives Congress a billion dollars of cash. And Congress can now give that as freebies or pay bills or whatever they're going to do. So in theory, the Federal Reserve's books always balance. But the bizarre thing about this is that Congress is borrowing from the Fed, and the Fed creates the money that they give back to Congress. So the Federal Reserve is the only one who can legally create money out of thin air <laughs> okay. and, and, charge, and charge interest on it. And charge interest. So, okay, so maybe for some people this is the first time they ever really put it together that um, maybe monopoly money actually is worth more than what we see being transferred from the Fed to the government and back one, and forth. One wonders. Yeah. yeah one <laughs> and of course, bringing up the game monopoly, um, you know, the Fed is by all means a monopoly as you've described it. What was the mindset back in 1913 that said, oh, this is a good idea? Well, largely, it was Americans trying to copy the um, nations of Europe. Uh, the European nations had done this um, really going back to the 14 or 1500s, probably before, where the king would grant a banking monopoly to a banking uh, company or a banking cartel. And the benefit to the cartel or the banking industry is they have a monopoly. That's always profitable. The benefit to the king was the king would have almost unlimited borrowing ability from that. So the king promises to give a banking cartel power over the money, uh, and, and the king's troops would enforce that money as, as being legal tender. Um, and the king would promise not to prosecute the bank for any weird dealings they might have. And then the king went to war or needed to remodel the palace, the king could go to the bank and get money. Of course, as the king gets money from the bank, that adds money to the economy, which caused inflation. So the peasants would pay for the war, but they didn't pay it in the form of an obvious tax. The peasants paid for it because their money was losing value. Because every time the monopoly bankers loaned the king money, um, that increased the money supply. So this was a pattern in Europe that a lot of people wanted to duplicate here. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, my least favorite of the founding fathers, uh, argued that we bring that simple banking concept to America. And there were uh, two different attempts to implement that in America. There was the first bank of the United States and the second bank of the United States, which were monopoly efforts. Uh, both of them were short-lived, lasting less than a decade each. So for most of the 1800s, we had no monopoly central bank. We were not following the European model. We were staying more of a free market, um, competitive environment. And then, of course, in 1913, um, those forces promoting the central bank were successful in doing it. And um, we had that Federal Reserve system ever since 1913. So this one has lasted over 100 years. 
Whereas yeah. you said others lasted only a couple of decades each. Yeah, less than a decade each, actually. Americans are just growing used to it. I think Americans couldn't imagine living in a world without the Federal Reserve. Well, most of us have been born after 1913, so it's the world we were born into, so we don't question it. Yeah, it's true. But that's not currently the status quo. There are a lot of people who are questioning it now. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a few voices out there that have been pretty good at, at raising some issues. Uh, Ron Paul, a former Texas congressman uh, and actually presidential candidate uh, for a time, did a lot of speaking and teaching on the Federal Reserve. Uh, he even proposed legislation that would require an audit of the Fed. Uh, now, the Fed being this quasi-half-government, half-private agency, uh, it has never had an audit, at least not a complete audit, in its 100-plus-year history. And so Ron Paul has pushed for an audit. And of course, Ron would also promote the idea of abolishing the Federal Reserve. And there have been other voices out there as well. Um, uh, a number of people on the Christian side of things who recognize that this is not really biblical to have a system that promotes inflation. And I think we forget the idea that inflation is a hidden tax. We, we've had in, in my lifetime periods of time where our annual price increases were you know, 12, 13% under Jimmy Carter. Uh, we have high inflation rates. We're stealing from the people 10, 12, 13% per year. So I think we're, we're waking people up a little bit, but the church needs to be awakened because uh, the whole Federal Reserve System works mostly to the detriment of the poor and the senior citizen. So as a body of Christ, we should be concerned for justice, but we should probably be even more concerned when a systematic injustice hurts the poor and hurts the elderly more. So it's a fallacy to think that the Bible speaks against the accruing of wealth. If you accrue wealth, God has requirements on that, including a tithe, or actually a number of tithes. And so the social financing would come by means of the tithe, not by means of government programs. So it seems to me that if Christians were to start applying what the Bible says, there would be a conflict with the state. <laughs> Do you predict that that's what would happen? Yeah, if Christians were well enough informed. Uh, you know, there's a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where the children of Israel were requesting a king. And God says that if you pursue the idea of a king, there's a whole number of evil things that will happen to you or bad things that will happen to you. And that passage, that passage indicates that if the king were to take 10% of your income, that you would become slaves. So there's a biblical standard that if we tithe 10%, we're slaves to God, which is what we ought to be. But if the king or the government takes 10% or more, we become slaves to that government. Well, in America, of course, we're paying more than 10% tax, so we're a slave by that measure. But if inflation were to be over 9%, um, we would become slaves by biblical definition. Right. So the church needs to be aware of this. And I go back to the senior citizen living on a fixed income. You know, that person has worked and they've saved money. Uh, the money they saved is a store of value. They performed labor for that money. And anything you do to devalue that money is stealing that person's labor. So inflation steals from everybody. But at least if you're still working, um, your wages will eventually go up and it reduces the negative effect of that loss of monetary value. But it discourages savings. You know, if they're, if, if interest rates are 5%, uh, if you deposit money in the bank at 5%, inflation is 6%, uh, who would save? Your money's losing value at the bank. The decade, our interest rates at banks have been about 1%. And our rate of price increases um, by most estimates in the last decade have been about six to 8% a year. So if you save your money in the bank, you get 1% or 2% interest, but it's losing value at 6 to 8% a year. It discourages savings. And the Bible encourages savings. Right. We are to save money for investment, for capital. Uh, we are to leave an inheritance to our grandchildren. Everything about inflation in the Federal Reserve discourages savings and investment. 
I remember when my husband and I were first married and we were looking at purchasing things, people were astounded that neither one of us had credit cards. And they said, oh, you have to get a credit card and you have to start buying things on credit because you have to prove that you're responsible. Now, that's not how I was raised, but it was kind of like, okay, so this is what you have to do. So we immediately went out and applied for credit cards. And, you know, the first limit was 5000 But if we paid off our debt regularly, not even the whole thing, but just enough, the minimum payment, and it came to a point where we had like the ability to go $30,000 in debt. And it was like, we just thought we had really arrived. Right. And we read Dr. Rush Dooney's book, Law and Liberty, and only to find out that not only was it unbiblical, but it wasn't particularly profitable or productive for our family. And we had just been on a trip and we had spent lots of money on credit cards and we had eaten meals out. And I remember saying to my husband after I read this, you know, I think we shouldn't be thanking God for what we have. I guess we should be thanking MasterCard because that's the premise we've been working on. And so we resolved to get ourselves out of debt, which we did. It took a while and it took some really good circumstances. But today, if you're a person who has no debt and does things by paying what you have, you're a bad credit risk and your credit score is low. Yeah, our banking system is upside down in a lot of ways. And uh, the banking system likes that because they want you to borrow money and pay interest to the banks. And again, the, the heart of our banking system is that the, the Federal Reserve is the, the root. Uh, the Federal Reserve system is the banker's banker. And even the mortgage industry, we've got what we call Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, these are another set of semi-government, semi-private uh, institutions. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac buy most of the home mortgages in America. So you may go to the corner savings and loan or the corner bank and get a home mortgage. The odds are pretty good that that bank or that institution is not going to hang on to that, that promissory note. They're going to sell it to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, these semi-governmental institutions. Well, because the banks plan on reselling the promissory note of your home loan, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, when they set a standard for what loans they will buy, that means that every bank has to follow that standard. So now a local banker is not making a decision on the loan based on your reputation or how much money you have in the bank. Uh, the standards are all determined by these semi-government monopolies. Um, in this case, it's a home mortgage business, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And so now we have these two quasi-governmental groups that are they're setting the standard for what is a credit-worthy loan. And we saw before the 2008 housing collapse that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had lowered the standards so that people were getting loans that shouldn't be. And then after the housing bubble collapsed, uh, they tightened the standards, uh, made the opposite extreme, so people should be able to get a loan, couldn't. And the bottom line is it should not be a government agency that decides who gets a loan and who doesn't. It should be private banking and lenders. And if we didn't have the government involved, you would see more lenders. They're not basing their loan on how much you've borrowed and paid back. They'd be basing the loan based upon your net assets or your income. Right. Repay. One of the things that's been interesting to me as I'm taking the course now, it, and you have like two to 300 people, if I estimate correctly, who are showing up for this 10-week course and we're going into week four. How many people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s are coming up to me and saying, how come I never knew this? How come he's saying things about the different jurisdictions of different parts of government? Is it because civics went out of fashion in schools or because state schools don't want to acknowledge the authority of the Bible that these principles have largely been forgotten? Well, that's exactly right. Our government slash state schools, uh, they're not going to go to the Bible for principles and they are not going to teach their students 
that some aspect of government is bad. You know, if you put your kids in a government school, you're going to expect that they're going to learn government doctrine. And so, um, you know, we just have a situation where we've allowed government to take over the educating of our kids. And so then do we expect our kids to learn about a failure of government? They're not going to criticize unbiblical government actions. And I think what happens, too, is we've been dumbed down a little bit. Um, you know, the jargon that ought to be something that's taught to every junior high student uh, isn't known by most adults. Um, you know, a lot of people are not that comfortable with terms like asset and liability um, or even inflation or um, you know, debt-based currency versus an asset-based currency. Uh, these are principles and concepts that people have, have never been taught. Uh, the hard part for me uh, when I have interviews like this one is to explain a concept. You sometimes have to use terms, and I may be using terms that people are not familiar with uh, through no fault of our listeners, but through the fault of their education system. Right. And so we have to begin to rebuild the, the jargon of the underlying concepts and words uh, so that people will begin to understand how they've been duped, uh, understand how the system is, is skewed. Um, uh, and, and I think for a lot of people listen to this, you know, some of the, the uh, technical details that I presented in an overview fashion, you may get lost. But I think the takeaways people need to understand is that uh, we've given a private um, consortium, I guess I would say, a private banking block power over our currency. So Congress has given that power away. And they manipulate the money supply and they manipulate the interest rates. And the Great Depression in 1829 was caused by that manipulation. The housing bubble of 2008 was caused by that manipulation. Um, this is the Federal Reserve System dropping interest rates to an unreasonably low level, um, which causes artificial demand for houses in this case. And if you create too much artificial demand, you create a bubble. And at some point, that bubble bursts. And so the question really is, you know, what should money be based on? Should money be based on assets or, or liabilities? And who should control the money? And I would argue that it should not be a private banking interest. Um, I would even go one step further to say, really, even if the government controlled the money, they could still inflate the money supply. Um, the best money supplies happy backed by gold or silver or something that keeps the supply limited. So there are people who are saying that some of the reasons we are seeing draconian measures being taken by our new administration is because they don't like the way things went for the past four years as things apparently or seemingly improved. Can a Federal Reserve central banking system get into trouble that they have to bail themselves out? Not really. Um, they can get the economy in trouble, but not really themselves. You know, when you have the power to control the printing press and to control interest rates, if you get in trouble, you just change interest rates or print more money. Uh, imagine your household. If you overspent, you wouldn't worry about it if you knew you could just print money and print your way out of it. Uh, the only way I think our banking system gets in trouble is when people recognize how corrupt it is at its core. And they get in trouble politically if we've got a groundswell that wanted to repeal the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Um, I mean, that's what really needs to happen. Uh, because otherwise, we have a small group of people meeting in secret. And by the way, this is advertised as a benefit of the Federal Reserve, they meet in secret. No one knows what they're doing. <laughs> right. I argue that's not a, not a benefit. And um, the booms and busts that we get, and, and by the way, there's always cycles in an economy. You know, economies tend to go through cycles. Uh, one of the arguments for the Federal Reserve System was that they would um, eliminate the cycles. Well, what's happened since we've had the Federal Reserve cycles is that our cycles have become bigger. We've had bigger booms and bigger busts. So the Federal Reserve has not really fixed that problem. But the Federal Reserve should sure get America into trouble. Right. 
So, you know, people aren't aware of the information you've just shared, but they're also unaware of the fact that the Bible has an economic system that was based on a seven-year cycle. It was called the sabbatical year, which would be year seven. And those first six years were all about social responsibility, but also not living in debt because a debt couldn't go beyond six years. And imagine today if we had six-year home mortgages as opposed to 30. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, in a system like that, uh, if you are two years from a sabbatical year, you're not going to loan anybody money for longer than a two-year term. And so the purpose of that system is it reduces the amount of debt that people are willing to take on. Uh, yeah, I think we forget how it used to be. I went back to my hometown where I grew up, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And I was with my, my dad, and we drove by the house that my dad grew up in. Uh, this is the house that my grandfather built. And this house was built um, during the Great Depression, sometime in the, I guess, early 30s. And uh, this is about a 3,000-square-foot colonial house in a nice neighborhood. Now, it's an older house now, but still to this day, a very attractive looking house, you know, white house, colonial style, black shutters. Uh, and most of us would say, okay, if a young couple was going to, to buy that house, you'd have a 30-year mortgage on it. And as we're parked out in the front and dad's reminiscing about growing up in that house, he makes the comment that uh, his dad, my grandpa, had that had a builder build that house and pay cash for it. And you say, wow, you know, grandpa must have been rich. Well, <laughs> my grandma was a stay-at-home mom and my grandpa was a public school teacher. And a public school teacher's salary, now they saved for some years, but they were to buy land and build a house and pay cash for it. Um, this is a, uh, a stark reminder of how we are economically probably worse off than the average American was 80, 90 years ago. Uh, we right. think we're better off because our cars are fancier, we have microwaves and we have cell phones. But those are technology components. Uh, technology would have improved no matter what our system was. Uh, the truth of the matter is, it is our government-regulated monopoly banking system that has made us poor. So now very few families can... You know, how many public school teachers, one-income families, and public school teacher salary could build a 3,000-square-foot house and pay cash for it? I wonder what that house is worth today. What would they sell it for? Yeah, well, I can take a guess. It's up in Idaho, so it's a cheaper real estate market, but it's probably a four or $500,000 house today. You know, wow. you take that same house and put it in San Jose, it'd be a $2 million house. Exactly, right. So this Biblical Principles of Government class you do in person, and it's a 10-week class. Now, there may be some people who are listening from various parts of the country saying, well, it's unlikely he's going to get to my neck of the woods. Are they just lost, or can they benefit from this class? Yeah, well, we are now uh, offering these classes uh, virtually uh, through a stream. So, for example, the one I'm teaching in San Jose right now, uh, people for $75 can buy the stream of the class, and they can watch um, the whole course on their own timetable. And the $75 allows them to watch up until August 31st. So it's a two hours a night for 10 weeks uh, for the live version. Uh, people could watch it any night of the week they want. They could do two hour chunks or one hour chunks. So um, uh, you know, it's a reasonable price for $75. I don't know, what is that? Uh, you know, $7.50 a class. And that includes a PDF of the study guide. So. Uh, an economical way for people to get some of this teaching and this material uh, in their own homes, whether they live in Maine or Hawaii or Alaska. And I think it's something very valuable for parents to do with their children. Um, and their children are going to discover that a lot of their parents are surprised that certain things are true because that's not what they were taught. So in a day when uh, people are not allowed to go to school, I think it be a great opportunity for families to do this together. I know that every time we leave a class, my husband says, 
I learned so much tonight. I learned so much tonight. And we've been aware of these things for a while, but your presentation style is easy. You're not arrogant or condescending. And one person last week commented how well you hold the audience's attention. You don't hear a lot of talking or moving around. Um, people are very interested who show up. Well, I appreciate those comments. You know, we try to make the class interesting. I love the subject area. Uh, now, someone listening to this podcast uh, would say, man, this sounds kind of complicated. Uh, what you and I just been talking about, Andrew, is the most complex part <laughs> of the whole class. And uh, you know, normally we build up to this. So people going through the course are getting a more gradual build up to the conclusions we've talked about here. So that probably is a kind or gentle way to learn the material than trying to tackle all the Federal Reserve in a one-hour podcast. Right. And, you know, the good part is for people who are listening, take the course. And now when you hear it a second time or you hear it laid out, um, maybe in a more systematic manner, you'll understand it better because we're talking about the future, the future for our children, our grandchildren. And unless we get it right, and by right, I mean God's way right, um, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we have to build this house on God's principles. No, you're right. I mean, I, I go back to that command that we are to save and invest and leave an inheritance to our children and our grandchildren. And yet what we're really doing is we're not leaving an inheritance. We're leaving massive amounts of debt. Uh, we are now over $30 trillion of national debt. Um, that interest is paid on that debt every year. And principal should be paid back. And for those listening, you know, our, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be saddled with paying back that debt um, and the interest on the debt. And if for some reason that debt is renounced at some point, that means that every dime you've got saved in the bank becomes worthless because that would mean the currency would have to be eliminated. Right. So we have to think about the legacy we're leaving to our future generations if we allow our government to keep inflating the money supply, uh, deficit spending, and you know, there's a lot of aspects to that, but certainly our money money system in the Federal Reserve is a key part of that. Um, if we could go back to even to a fixed money supply or a hard metal-based money supply, uh, the prosperity that would ensue would blow everybody away. How much bad monetary policy is harming us economically? You know, another passage of scripture that comes to mind is that all that hate God love death. And you think of, forget about the ethical issue with abortion. If you just take a look at the number of citizens who would be working, paying into a tax base, we have eradicated a whole generation, uh, many generations actually. And so now you have baby boomers who are living longer and expecting to keep their standard of living the way they were used to, but there are fewer people who are working. And so those people are not only not going to see the fruits of their labor in the future, they're not seeing it today either because of the government programs and things like guaranteeing people that we will give you money when you need it. And so um, it's amazing how sitting against God has ramifications in all sorts of different areas. Yeah, you know, for everything to happen that we've talked about, uh, the whole Federal Reserve System, the deficit spending, these things only happen when a government goes outside of its God-ordained function. And I, I come back to the, the fundamentals. Biblically, there really are only two biblically outlined roles for the civil government. One is to adjudicate disputes. That's the idea of a court system where you have a contract violation or something. The court's here between two parties and render a decision. And then beyond the adjudicating of disputes, it is the job of the civil government to protect our rights by punishing the evildoer. So we punish the rapist, the bank robber, the murderer. Um, and those are the two jobs of government, to adjudicate disputes and to punish the evildoer, thus giving us some protection of our rights and liberties. 
there is no biblically outlined role for government to take from one and give to another or to provide charity. Uh, charity is the role first of the family and secondarily of the church in, in scripture. It's not a role of the civil government. And so everything we've talked about with the Federal Reserve System, the inflation, um, deficit spending, all of these, these things happen because we allow government to do things that it's not intended to do. I think one of the reasons that we have so much conflict in our society is because it's a diversion against people understanding the source of the problems. So what you've just described with the Federal Reserve System has nothing to do with the color of someone's skin or their country of origin. But if people are fighting with each other over these kinds of things, maybe they won't notice the fact that they're being stolen from on a regular basis. So keep the conflict going so that you can divert attention away from what people might really want to fix. No, Andrew, that's very insightful. I think this happens a lot. Um, we're so distracted by political events and the social change. They were distracted just by entertainment, you know, give people bread and circuses and uh, they're too busy enjoying the football games or baseball games. And I love sports as much as the next person, but uh, we get distracted away from the main, main issues in our society. And um, I, I think these are things we got to re refocus on the, the basics and we need to get sure, sure that we get a society where we keep government as proper boundaries. And we have to go back to a biblically based economy where we save and invest and we have a stable money supply. Um, I mean, you realize everything we do in an economy is measured in money. You know, I hire a kid to mow my lawn. Uh, it's measured in money. I value the time at a certain rate. He values at a certain rate. We negotiate a price. It's all based on some perceived value of the money. And if you fiddle with the money, uh, you mess up an economy. You change the, the value structure. And of course, now we're giving money away hand and fist. And um, I know you've interviewed people on the coronavirus issues, but uh, to my view, we have a government who exercise a role that's not a proper government role to quarantine people. And therefore it costs a lot of people a lot of money. So now the government says, oh, well, we got to make it up to them by giving them $1,400 or $800 or whatever it might happen to be. First of all, we can never compensate people enough to compensate for having your business closed if it's a restaurant or a health club. Um, but the end result is, of course, we'll put our kids in debtor's prison for generations to pay off the debt. Um, yeah, I think God is clear in Scripture, too, that when you go down a sinful road, that there's a point where he releases you to go further down that road. Mm -hmm. And um, one sin begets another. And this happens in our personal lives. Uh, if we are hardening ourselves to sin, God will oftentimes harden us more and have us reap more, more consequences. Well, that happens to societies. Um, when a society turns its back on God's law, I think God makes it real easy for that society to be blinded and to... Um, go further down those roads. It's like the alcoholic who wakes up with a hangover, and the first solution hangover is to conserve more booze. And I think that's kind of where we are as a nation. We have a hangover, and um, we just figure, oh, we'll stay drunk, and everything's going to be okay. But at some point, that doesn't doesn't work anymore. Right. I, I think, too, for our listeners, you can take any government policy and superimpose that over your family's financial policy. Uh, if a decision at the public level would not make sense for a family, then it really does not make sense for the, the public level either. Um, so can the family just borrow themselves to prosperity? And the answer is no. I mean, you can't temporarily, but ultimately it'll make you poorer. And that's what we're doing in America. You know, we're borrowing on the future for some more perceived prosperity today. That is going to pay a dividend that will be very, very negative. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about the work you do 
is that you're hopeful for the future, even as you deliver some bad news to people as you teach them. And you have invested not only in courses like these, but you have reading lists that you suggest and you promote other people's books so that people can get an underpinning of the issues and understand them better. And you also invest in young people by coaching them and teaching them how to be good public speakers, how to debate, how to analyze an issue. And to me, that's probably what I like best about you is that you have hope for the future and you're willing to invest in young people now. Tell my listeners a little bit about your emphasis on debate. Yeah, um, I, I think part of the things we have to do is teach people how to think. And a lot of modern education is really designed to teach people how to memorize and regurgitate uh, and not to think. And the value of debate is that uh, you just can't memorize things and regurgitate them. You have to respond to an opponent who makes a claim or an argument. And so especially at the high school and college level, one of the benefits of debate is that it forces a student who wants to be competitive to learn things at a deeper level and to actually think things through. And um, if you just regurgitate something that you memorized and your opponent confronts you in the debate round with it, you have to actually begin to think, gee, how do I answer that argument? So we really believe that uh, debate and to some degree speech competition is a great way to improve the thinking process of our kids. Now, I will say that uh, debate is a research activity where our students research, and that's good. But just debating and researching does not guarantee that you find the truth. So we see debate as a way to train a thinking process, but we still believe it's necessary that we inject into these students uh, biblical truth, historical truth, so that they just don't become good um, good debaters who can just twist a, an argument to their benefit. Uh, we uh, have used this a lot in the homeschool environment. I'm involved in the National Homeschool Debate League. Uh, my wife and I coach a homeschool debate club. Uh, the Institute for Principal Studies, our organization sponsors a speech and debate league for uh, Christian schools. And it's a great chance for us to develop a relationship with schools, train their kids how to communicate better, which helps evangelism. And at the same time, uh, we try to come alongside and uh, teach some good principles of government. Well, I had the opportunity on Saturday to be one of your community judges at one of these Christian school, it was a speech competition. And um, so I was judging the, the persuasive speeches and the apologetic speeches. And I had to download the six categories of apologetics and then 14 potential uh, prompts that the students would have to be prepared for. And the way the competition goes is they come into the room, they're given three potential topics to discuss, and they have to pick one, and then they have to speak for a certain amount of time. And what I was amazed at, Mike, was when I looked at the various categories and the various topics I wondered how many adults, Christians for decades, could address these topics. And I actually think um, I'm in the back of my mind thinking that for adults, um, not so much to create a debate league or a speech league, but to help them see that if they want to be effective in being the salt and light, they have to understand these topics. And I was, you know, not all the students had the best theology, although I could see they were getting there. And with critique and with encouragement, I could see that their theology would um, mature. But I thought, what a great opportunity to have to dig into not only what you believe and why you believe it, then to be able to present it. Yeah, that league uh, is primarily just California schools right now. But we have a school in Nashville, and we have a school in Northern Idaho, and we have some schools around the country who I think will be joining the league. And our hope is to 
have a competitive league with Christian schools from all around the country. And what speech and debate competition does, it motivates these kids to want to learn these topics because they want to win the trophy. <laughs> right. You know? And so uh, it's a great way to teach. And I think teachers find that this extra level of competition is a great motivator uh, to make students self-motivated so they're not just studying something to regurgitate it on a test. It's a great preparation, but it also brings to bear that the topics that you have to examine in a debate league when it's a policy debate, you have to examine both sides of the issue and be able to understand the ramifications of each. So it's actually quite sophisticated, even though it's geared towards high school and college. Yeah, I, I had the benefit of debating in high school myself, and I saw what it did for me. Um, it helped me in college because I went through liberal universities, and my training as a debater in high school helped me to see through some of the arguments my liberal college professors made. And I think it can be helpful at maintaining worldview. Um, it's not foolproof. Uh, we have students that go through these programs who uh, walk away from the Lord or, or lose their worldview in college. But I think we improve the odds. Right. And I think giving them these skill sets, helping them to be able to uh, have insight, you know, to be able to uh, second guess that college professor or to go out and research the college professor to to challenge them if necessary, uh, they're important skill sets. Ultimately, we have to make sure, though, that we're making the truth available to them. Yes. And um, that's the challenge, is we have to get biblical truth in front of them. Uh, I appreciate ministries like Calcedon who are publishing and, and providing information. Uh, you know, we, we do some of our own publishing, but a lot of the information that we promote and encourage people to read are not things that we have published, um, but we're promoting things that we think have a good worldview published by other other organizations. So we see ourselves as a bit of a pipeline for a few of our own ideas uh, or a few of our own writings, but also just a pipeline to get other good classic material from a biblical worldview in the hands of teachers and students and, and in some cases parents. Right. And we have to admit that no matter how good a Christian organization is, think tank like Chalcedon, our, our primary source is scripture. And so we're always um, sharing God's view as opposed to having any original thought ourselves. No, that's right. We should test everything by, by scripture. And uh, uh, you and I have had this conversation privately, but uh, I, I have a pretty extensive library. And there are two or three works that if I was stranded on a desert island, um, you know, what would I have with me? And uh, after my Bible, um, probably my second or third work would be um, R.J. Rustini's Institutes of Biblical Law. And those intimidate people because they are sizable. But I remind people, you don't have to read it all at once. And I'm just so impressed by the, the worldview points you back to Scripture. And I think we need to promote these classic works so that people are reading them. I mean, that's, that's where it starts in transforming a society. Exactly. By the way, we have the same two books, Bible and Institutes. But then I always figured I would have to bring a survival guide to learn how to start <laughs> a fire and right. which, which plants wouldn't kill me if I ate them, things like that. Yeah, yeah. You need some practicality in there, too. Right? <laughs> well... If you want to get through the book, it'll take a while. So you want to make That's sure you're right. not dead. <laughs> okay. So once again, let listeners know how to reach you if they would like to talk with you. Because I imagine there's some people who would say, I'd love to have him come to my church. Well, it's probably not possible for you to fly 10 weeks into a place that's not in California or in driving distance. However, you do do seminars on weekends and things like that. So why don't you give the whole menu on how people can get a hold of you and how they might access what you have to offer? Yeah, I guess the two main avenues, I'll start with the easy one, it's just the telephone. Uh, people can pick up the phone and call us and they can talk to a real person who will describe what options we have. Uh, our phone number is area code 209-575-2005. 
Again, that's 209-575-2005. And our office hours are 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, every business day of holidays. And then a lot of people, of course, want to use the internet. They can go to our website, which is principalstudies.org. Principal is spelled not like the leader of a school. Uh, it's spelled like a concept or idea. That's P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, principalstudies.org. And they will see some of the, the articles that we've promoted and uh, some of the things we've written. They'll see schedules of classes. They can sign up for our 10-week class, uh, the virtual version on that website. Uh, and there's also contact information there. They can send us an email. Uh, and our bookstore is there. So people can check out books that we recommend. Well, that's great, Mike. Thank you. I know I'll see you again soon because we're in week four of the class. But I really think that what you do allows people of all ages to realize it's not too late to learn. Um, you're still here. You haven't gone to heaven. So God still has work for us to do. And with biblical knowledge applied and learning how to apply it, we can only please God all the more. Well, amen. That would be our goal in everything we do. We want to glorify God, and we want to serve our fellow man. Exactly. And we glorify God by following his principles of government, and we actually better serve our fellow man by following his principles, because that is the only way you reduce poverty. Exactly. All right, listeners, thanks for joining. If you want to contact the podcast, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.